We're continuing in the sermon series through the book of the Acts. And again, we are in chapter 16. We'll begin the reading at verse 11. We read read from uh, 11 to 15 last Sunday, but we're going to continue to uh, verse 40 this morning. Let us ask the Lord to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your great work of salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ, and we thank you that he is building his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so we ask for what you have promised, and that is the blessing of the Holy Spirit upon the proclamation of the gospel. And we pray that you would open our hearts anew and illumine our minds and grant us grace to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that the meditations of our hearts and now the words of my mouth would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The reading of Holy Scripture. Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 11. So, setting sail from Troas, we, that is, the Apostle Paul, Silas, Timothy, and now Dr. Luke, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Later, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. 
And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And now I'm going to go to verse 40, and this is after Paul and Silas are released from prison. They went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever and to his name be all praise, honor, glory, and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians is one of my favorite books of the Bible, and if you're familiar with it, I bet it's one of your favorites too. For one thing, it's relatively easy to read and to understand, and for another, it's characterized by joy and gratitude and peace. It's a very happy letter which the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, which was for the most part a very happy and healthy church. It was a church to which Paul was personally endeared with love and gratitude. And I hope that this afternoon after your Mother's Day festivities, just take a little time and read through Paul's letter to the Philippians. You can do it in a a simple sitting won't take you very long, and the reason I want you to do that is that in Acts chapter 16, we have the story of how it all began in Philippi. And this morning in Acts 16, you're going to meet three of the very first members of the church in Philippi. And we're going to see that they were very different individuals, but that through faith in Christ, they were bound together in unity. We're going to see that each one came to faith in Christ from very different backgrounds and through different personal experiences, but that each of those 
individual experiences, though different, had one essential thing in common. Three different personal experiences, each one had one, they all had one essential thing in common. The supernatural, sovereign work of the Holy Spirit through the word of the gospel. In each case, salvation came to these very different individuals by the supernatural, sovereign work of the Holy Spirit through the word of the gospel, which they received and believed by the grace of God through faith alone in Jesus Christ. That's still the way that God saves sinners today. Philippi was a significant city with an important history. It was a Roman colony whose citizens automatically enjoyed the privileges of Roman citizenship. Now, if you were here last Sunday, you understand now that we're on the continent of what we call Europe today. We, We are in Greece The gospel goes to Europe. Remember that from last Sunday? Well, very few Jews lived in Philippi, and so there was not a synagogue there. So on the Sabbath day, Paul and his missionary companions, Silas, Timothy, Dr. Luke, went outside the city gate to the place of prayer by the riverside. This is where the very few Jews and God-fearing Gentiles would gather. Now, on this occasion, apparently only women were there, among whom was Lydia from the city of Thyatira, which is back over in Asia Minor in, in modern-day Turkey. She was, had immigrated to Greece, if you will. She is a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Now, Lydia, a worshiper of God, was probably one of these God-fearers, a technical term for a Gentile who worshiped the God of Israel and in many ways conformed to his law, his moral law, but did not fully convert to Judaism, did not practice the ceremonial and dietary laws. But, but Lydia, a seller of purple goods, which were expensive linens, had come from Asia Minor and established her business among, we may presume, the well-to-do clientele of Philippi. And, by the way, we're told later that she owned a rather large house and was gracious with hospitality, and so she was probably rather well-to-do herself. So I think we know this about Lydia. She was an intelligent, competent, successful, entrepreneurial businesswoman. I think we can imagine that she presented herself 
very well. She probably identified and moved among the higher social and economic strata of Philippi because she sold expensive items. And because she was a worshiper of God, we can also infer that Lydia was a person of serious religious sensibility, interested in matters of religion. So I think we would recognize Lydia to be well, we've got, oh, just a really, really fine woman. Just a very, just a very nice woman. And the scripture says that on that Sabbath day, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. May I repeat that? The Lord opened her heart. I repeat... The Lord opened her heart. That's how the first conversion on European soil took place. It was a miracle. A miracle of the supernatural sovereign work of the Holy Spirit through the word of the gospel. Notice that Luke doesn't tell us what Lydia said or what Lydia did. The entire focus of this verse is upon what the Lord did in her. He opened her heart supernaturally and sovereignly. This is a wonderful biblical illustration of the effectual call of God to His elect. This is how eternal, unconditional election and predestination gets worked out in real time, in real individual lives. The Word goes forth. The Holy Spirit opens hearts. And people believe the gospel. That's a miracle. This was Lydia's moment of new birth when she was born again and personally became a new creation in Christ by the supernatural sovereign work of the Holy Spirit through the word of the gospel. And this miracle, this miracle of conversion is, every time it happens, is a miracle greater than greater than the miracle of Jesus' raising Lazarus from the tomb after four days. How can I say that? Jesus raised Lazarus from physical death to a restored physical temporary life on earth. But here the Lord opened Lydia's heart and raised her from spiritual death to eternal life. That's the case with every true conversion. If you are a true believer in Jesus Christ today, it's only because you had this miracle take place in your life. The Lord opened your heart. And if that has happened to you, you know it. Thanks be to God. 
Now, I've often said that I or Pastor Jonathan or any preacher of the gospel can proclaim salvation in Christ and the words will travel out of the mouth, across sound waves, through the air, hit your eardrum, be intelligibly transmitted into your brain, but only the Holy Spirit can illumine your mind. Only the Holy Spirit can turn on the light of spiritual understanding. And only the Holy Spirit can open your heart so that the gospel goes from your ear to your brain to your inmost being so that you truly receive and believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That's a miracle. Jesus said, you must be born again. And that's not anything that any of us can do for ourselves. But perhaps it's taking place right here, right now, in someone's heart as I speak. By the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when that happened to Lydia, she knew it. She had a settled conviction. And so she was baptized, she and her household. She and her household received the sign of the new covenant. Baptism, the sacrament of incorporation into the visible church of Jesus Christ. And we don't know if Lydia was married or widowed or had children, but Lydia as a new Christian essentially made Joshua's vow, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And therefore her household, whoever that included, received the sign of the new covenant in Jesus Christ, baptism. That included whatever servants may have been in her household and whatever children may have been in her household, including infants. And after Lydia was baptized, she invited, indeed, she urged Paul and his companions to come to her house and stay there. Lydia's house was the first house church on European soil. And you know, it may have been the case that some of the other women there at the prayer meeting that day likewise believed the gospel But perhaps Luke chose not to tell us their stories, but focused only on Lydia because her house became the gathering place of the newly born church in Philippi. This is how it all began. Think about Lydia the next time you read Paul's letter to the Philippians. And think about this. Chapter 16 goes on by saying that on another occasion, presumably the next Sabbath day, as Paul and his companions were going again to the place of prayer to preach the gospel again to others gathered there, they were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Well, perhaps you can get the picture when you know that the literal translation is that this slave girl had a 
python spirit. A python spirit. Sounds rather repulsive, doesn't it? This was a very sad situation. She's just the opposite of Lydia. She was a... Her life was a wreck and she was a broken wretch. She had probably been purchased or claimed as a slave out of the ravages of war. There is no telling what kind of abuse, emotional, physical, sexual, that she had suffered. You know, this kind of spiritual oppression was not limited to the first century. More and more these days, as our Christian civilization begins to crumble, you see, you see more and more of this just right here in Washtenaw Parish. You know, if, if you're sensitive to this, you, 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 can, you can sense the pain and the anger and the personal misery and the spiritual darkness that enslaves people. You you see it. You see it out there. People who are victims. I mean, you wonder, what, what happened to that person? People who are victims of parental abandonment or abuse human trafficking, pernicious sexual promiscuity, or drug-induced demonization of their minds. You see it today in the insane rage of the radical revolutionaries whose goal it is to deconstruct and to destroy the foundations of civilization in America. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm I'm not explaining away. I'm not giving a natural explanation for spiritual darkness. The, the, The spiritual realities in the spiritual realm are real. But my point is that the demons of Satan exploit. The demons of Satan take advantage of the psychological, emotional, spiritual brokenness which results from the severe trauma of abandonment and abuse. And those demons more easily enter into the fragmented psyche of such a broken person. If that person isn't protected and nurtured by a loving and Christian community, that person is easy prey for Satan. This was a girl who had no life and no hope. Hell now and hell later. 
But just as the demons recognized Jesus for who he was during his earthly ministry, this slave girl, the demon, recognized Paul and his companions for who they were. And she followed them, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days so that Paul became greatly annoyed. And finally, I suppose, by the leading and direction of the Holy Spirit, he turned and said to the demon, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now, the Scripture does not explicitly say that this fortune-telling girl made a profession of faith and was baptized. The Scripture doesn't say anything more about her. But given the fact that her story occurs here when it does, as it does here in Acts 16, it seems reasonable to infer that Luke is including her in his account of the founding and growth of the church in Philippi, including her among the very first members. And I didn't just make that up by my own speculation. It happens to be the inference of the late John Stott, very reputable biblical scholar and theologian. It also happens to be the inference of Sinclair Ferguson. I'll go with that. And so we may, I think, safely infer that this slave girl, yes, was saved dramatically in very different circumstances from that of Lydia, but by the same supernatural, sovereign work of the Holy Spirit who through the word of the apostle and the name of Jesus Christ cast out the demon, restored her to her right mind, and enabled her to embrace Jesus Christ as her Savior and Lord. This was a conversion which resulted in a dramatically changed life. And that still happens today. By the power of the Holy Spirit, through the word of the gospel, listen, to people whose lives seem to be beyond repair and redemption. Thanks be to God. The slave girl's conversion also led to the next conversion in Philippi. See how this is working itself out? The slave girl's owners didn't appreciate having their source of income, their cash cow, taken away. They seized Paul and Silas, dragged them before the Roman magistrates, cast an ethnic slur against them, calling them Jews, which of course they were, and accused them of disturbing the peace on the grounds that they were advocating customs, religious practices, which were not lawful for the Romans. Then the crowd stripped them and beat them with rods and threw them into the prison where the jailer fastened their feet in the stocks. And by the way, Paul later wrote to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians, that he had been shamefully treated in Philippi. 
Oh, by the way, this makes me think about the way in which the leaders of Planned Parenthood and the politicians who are beholden to them are now enraged at and casting slurs upon Christians who are praying to see that demon-driven economic enterprise put out of business. Oh yeah, there's big, big, big money in the abortion business. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is a direct threat to it. Just as it was a threat to the economic gain of the slave girl's owners so that they were enraged against Paul and Silas. Pray on, pray on, stand firm. So Paul and Silas were brutally beaten and locked in the inmost prison with their feet in the stocks. For doing the right thing, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. And what did they do? Listen, no whining, no whimpering, no defeatist despair, no fear of man. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. You see, their accusers and the authorities had tried to shut them up and shut down the spread of the gospel. But oh no, oh no, 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 no. For Paul and Silas, that prison was just another place to praise God and call upon Him in faith so that others would hear. Suddenly there was a great earthquake. All the prison doors flew open. The prisoners' bonds were unfastened. When the jailer saw what had surely been a jailbreak, he knew that he was done for, and so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul cried out and stopped him, and he reassured him that all of the prisoners were still there. And the jailer fell down trembling before Paul and Silas, recognizing that they were servants of a powerful God whose wrath had just been displayed. And the jailer said to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The jailer was shaken to the core. This was a man who had been in warfare as a Roman soldier. He's shaken to the core. He knew that that the God... He might not have known who this God was, but he knew that the God of Paul and Silas was intervening on their behalf because they were innocent, and he knew that he was guilty and could be struck down at any moment by the hand of this angry God. Oh, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved from the wrath 
of your God? That's the question. In that moment, that Roman jailer was a pretty good theologian. In fact, a much better theologian than a lot of people in America today who scoff at the question, what must I do to be saved? Ha. A lot of people, if not most, including some church-going people, don't believe that there's anything that they need to be saved from. What must I do to be saved? That's the reason that R.C. Sproul liked to ask the question, and he wrote a little book entitled, Saved from What? Answer, Saved from God. Saved from the wrath of a holy and righteous God who punishes sin with death and hell. What must I do to be saved? Answer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, whom God sent into the world to bear His wrath and to satisfy His justice as the substitutionary sacrifice for all your sins. This is the love of God. This is the mercy of God. A love and mercy which appeases wrath and satisfies justice by suffering the punishment in the place of the guilty. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same night and washed their wounds. Isn't that a beautiful image? See it. The jailer who had had his sins washed away by the blood of Christ now washed the bloody wounds of Paul and Silas and sat at table with them to eat. He was baptized, he and all his family. Another household baptism. You see, just as Lydia did, the jailer took Joshua's vow. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. He rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. That's a very interesting phrase. Verse 34, he rejoiced that he had believed in God. The implication there is that Something had happened to him, within him, enabling him to believe in God, the true God. Something had happened to him. He, he rejoiced that he 
He had believed in God. Something had happened to him within him that gave him the joyful assurance that he now really was accepted by the one and only true and living God. And he had a joyful assurance that he really was saved forever. This jailer, a hardened Roman soldier, rough, tough, callous, pagan, brute, had been saved. How? By the supernatural, sovereign work of the Holy Spirit through the word of the gospel, the Lord opened his heart. That's how Jesus Christ saves people and builds his church against all the opposition hell can muster. And he's still doing that today. By God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, what happened to that jailer can happen to you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's how the church in Philippi began. With an attractive, successful businesswoman, a demon-possessed slave girl, and a Roman jailkeeper. <laughs> Is that not amazing? And, and that little church, with this diversity of members, with unity in Christ, grew in faith and love to become one of the most exemplary of all the New Testament churches. And isn't that the church that we want to become? Don't we want to be that kind of church? The kind of church to whom the Apostle Paul would write. Philippians 1. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all. Lydia, slave girl, jailer, and those of you who have come later. In all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. To God be the glory. Let us pray. Amen. Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We, we thank you for the mighty power of the Holy Spirit that calls us from death unto life. We thank you for your word of truth which sanctifies us and builds us up as your people. Give us, O oh Lord, grace for greater faith, deeper repentance, so that we might live cheerfully 
courageously and confidently as citizens of heaven, even now on earth, to the glory of your name. Amen. And in response to the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ, let us stand and affirm what we call the Philippian Creed, found in the letter to the Philippians chapter 2. Christians, in whom do you believe? We believe in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count the quality of God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death. Wow.